This is uh, Sunrise here, as usual, with the uh, Real Indigenous cast. I'll let um, my colleagues speak, and then we'll talk about the second season of Dark Winds. We're going to kind of complete where we started off. We talked a little bit about the first episode, and we had some suggestions about what we thought what what was coming. Um, But now we'll kind of wrap it up. Now the series has come to its conclusion for the second season, and then maybe we'll hint at what we think might happening for the future if there is one who do we have here it looks like angela right angela uh matt bars monica brain on the mic and that other guy this is tully with something i guess there's a mic on my computer right that's why y'all can hear me so i got the this mic is... too oh my god <laughs> like, yeah it's almost like we need a better mic over there yeah having worked in radio i am just this is like nails on the chalkboard for me for all of us (laughs) yeah i'm sorry who's got the best audio to you monica probably probably angela yeah are you saying that just because you can see there's a microphone there or because it sounds when i edit i always sound i sound soft when i edit yeah she does sound soft yeah but am i the worst dollar mic no you're routinely you're not that bad actually whoever that was that was like typing that whole time that's the worst (laughs) yeah well yeah it sounds like we're we're in need of microphones so hopefully that will resolve itself um at some point so provide to the patreon oh yeah provide by mics absolutely want to hear as well support the patreon (laughs) (laughs) well let's um let's talk some dark winds this is our second season of this series. It sounds like it's very likely going to have a third season. We kind of came into this talking about episode one with uh, Angela and Noetta and myself. I guess some of us talked about season one before. I mean, I think it was the usual suspects talking about season one. Yeah. Uh, so it was probably me, Tully. Was Jason in on that conversation? I believe he was at least one of them. And it- Cause we kind of split it too, because you guys got the reviews and I think you just, guys just told us what it was about. And I just listened in or did I know you said I saw no, the reviews. I don't fucking remember. You, don't no, matter. you watched the series because you and I both discussed the final episode. I, I do remember that there were some criticisms from us as well as like wider uh, on the net. And uh, in general, when I would talk to people that they would be against the mysticism that was depicted in the first season, depictions of witches and witchcraft and um, elements of the supernatural that seemed to be exaggerated. And maybe like the only depiction of it was negative for the most part, Uh, even though I think there are elements of the spirituality in in the first season. Some of them come back. But I think that was one thing that seemed to be a point of contention. Uh, Another was language, that it seemed like maybe the language was not as well as included. Uh, That's something we started to talk about with the first episode of the second season, that it seemed to be included a little bit more. We're starting to like that. So those are some things I think where we left off from like the first season in and the first episode of the second season. As we shift into this new season, just as a reminder, Chi is no longer working in law enforcement. He has shifted into PI work. Lee Porn is investigating and uh, almost by himself in solitude. Manuelito is also sort of maybe responding to local incidents. So they all are sort of like maybe investigating some things on their own. They're not quite working together on a single series of events yet. 
the second episode this season called Wonders of the Unknown, we start to see some of those things bridge after the last part of episode one where Lee Porn and Chi were chasing an individual into the desert and then they were being shot at. And then we kind of, I guess, see Lee Porn affected by this to some degree. And then she is is placed into the hospital. I don't know. Uh, does anybody have any responses, I guess, to any of these moments shifting from one into the, a new episode or like that episode? How, how long has it been since you guys see? Because we're talking basically at the end, right? All of this is just wrapped up, I believe, last week for us. I don't know when it will appear when this drops, but it's been some time, at least since the last episode. And it's probably been some time since the second episode. We could just talk about the overall story because it's it's one complete story throughout the whole season and so it's it'd be good to tell it as a as a full complete story also and then the character arcs and those kind of things and who is the showrunner of this season uh, the showrunner for 2022 is vince calandra so first season was vince calandra and second mm -hmm. season was john worth he's a yeah been a producer and stuff he did right. terminator Sarah chronicles yeah so, which was great those were great yeah briscoe county nash bridges for those that are like maybe oh yeah oh, County. yeah he's been around a while. yeah he's a you know he's a pro and i feel like it kind of showed with this season you get to focus on characters and and, and those stories and the people in the in the place and that kind of stuff yeah i think you're kind of also describing just kind of like the nature of television today where we have um an emphasis of relationships audiences developing relationships with characters and we spend time with them and it's not always about plot moving forward and that we're also seeing characters kind of develop and change which we kind of don't see in maybe some sitcoms or something so you're saying you're sensing that because of this new showrunner the show kind of like allowed for breathing room for us to spend time with characters yeah and we're, there, were, yeah. there were little bits of humor like punched in in different places which i thought was kind of refreshing mm-hmm like with the goat. The goat, the three-horned goat. Yeah, with the stoner. Mm -hmm. But that was pretty funny. And then when everybody goes to watch the lunar car at the sheriff's office, I thought that was pretty pretty cute. Yeah, the, the electricity goes out where they're watching it and they all run over to the sheriff's office to watch it. And even like, uh, they kind of like with Jim Chi's character kind of like gave him like this really cool vibe, you know, very 70s style, which you want to... Made fun of his, what, what kind of suit were that, was that suit that they were Yeah, they were roasting him over the polyester suit, which was mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. With those big, uh, the little boy that was talking about his collar hanging out. Butterfly, and that's what they used to call it, butterfly collar? I don't know, I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah, there's that collar. And the, and the young boy whose mother goes missing, or like she, I guess his father goes missing, right? He's murdered, and then right the mother is coming to pick him up and so she and the boy are like hanging out of that fast food place and on the way that the boy leaves he like pops his own collar right to yeah. mimic chi a little bit um, that was cute yeah so there, there's little touches in this one i think this season that were maybe missing in the first or they didn't stand out to me as much mm -hmm. in the in the first season i have to say my probably my favorite episode of this season was episode three and that was a steve paul judd mm -hmm. and michael nankin antagonist which is the one with this little boy yeah mm -hmm. and i mean there was you know i i always go back to schindler's list there's that flashback with the 
the stylized Schindler's List where our big bad is you kind of see where he came from. And then it, right. as it morphs into the attack in the hospital, which I thought that was great. It was a lot more cinematic than a lot of the other episodes that had been shot. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, that, that felt like kind of a pivot point for the series. It just, I don't, the first season didn't seem terribly memorable, but this um, episode three, especially, you just, there are elements of like, like De Palma movies. They were just stuff they're doing with color and the split diopter. Um, visually, it just really, really grabbed your attention. And um, it was pretty consistent throughout that episode. And I carried over into episode four, too, which felt like a spaghetti western. Yeah, the march. Mm-hmm. And the having them wrapped around the, the, the noose. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like I was uh, watching a Man With No Name movie. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like... Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly, where they're having to walk and trek across like inhospitable spaces, mm-hmm. and and there's elements of vengeance, and you're not quite sure who, if there's any person that's redeemable, because mm-hmm. um, everyone is motivated by something that is dark. Right, there are the dark winds and the spirits of these people. One is a recognized killer, and the other is like out for vengeance. And they both get so brutalized in that episode. Like Zahn is yeah. still like in a, he's wounded for the rest of the season because of that particular mm-hmm. episode. And the way that the killer is describing how his body is like de- decomposing or like what possible illnesses he could get or what detriment to his life there could be. It's like really intense. And uh, see, it felt like they were really, really embracing the noir aspects of the material. Um and that really that really stood out to me more so than the first season. Again, I don't I don't really remember much about the first season. Well, this season is definitely more noir just because of the lady in distress. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, going after the the Maltese Falcon. Oh, absolutely. Type situation, and I think it they they made it work well for this setting. Yeah, and then there's actual detection work by looking at documents, right? Where Bernadette is looking at the microfiche. And then she's finding a document that seems to reveal something about the the details of the mine and whether it had um, elements of uranium or not. And then it's like there's a switch by the last episode and, and it was doctored as a, as a document. Mm-hmm. All those things, I mean, that's something I expect out of any kind of cop series almost. And it was kind of missing from last season where we kind of see them, why they're good at their job or how solving crimes requires a lot of uh, minutia like that and interpretation really back then when you had to deal with micro microfiche microfiche yeah uh-huh. <laughs> how easy it probably was back then to replace paperwork because you don't now you don't have a digital trail everything's on paper so it's harder to find and detect so you would have to go to this deep dive looking at the library and going to the the microfiche thingy and then just trying to figure out all together so i'm sure that's a good reason to have it set in that period to make it like even harder to find out these kind of things. Whereas nowadays right. we just pop on the internet and we find it. Or, yeah. Or we find a digital trail of information on somebody's hard drive or desktop or something. Then... <laughs> Should we explain back before computers, you had to go to the basement of the library and you had to open up smelly drawers, filing cabinet drawers, and you had to pull out and look for a different little spool of film and then you had to go to this one station that was never working and never had a light 
and you had to go try three different stations and then you had to spool it up and then you had to you had to fast forward to find the date oh you went too far you always had to go back and then... <laughs> we should have, that should have been part of the scene <laughs> that's many in those episodes have all that happening yeah and then she has to go find these objects and match them to physical objects like the document i guess is in the um the what is his name vine in his box that's been stolen and that's sort of like been a a through line through the whole season maybe i think it kind of gets lost but uh, why she gets hired as a private detective by Vine's wife to find objects in a missing box. And there's sort of like this lingering idea of like what is important about these objects in a box. It's like photographs or like a camera, the glasses and this bits and pieces of this document, it seems like. Or, or no, that's not true. The document is in the role of film on the camera, um, which he doesn't get developed until the last episode. But that, they that try to burn everything. Yeah, they try rid. to burn it. Right. Yeah. Which seems to be what sparks everything at the beginning. So it sounds like we're liking the noir things, the noir elements and sort of like the shifts in the genre. Like you guys are mentioning this episode Antagonish that um, Steve Paul Judd wrote. It does feel very like cinematic because of the, the color, because of the action that happens in it is very suspenseful. I think it's also we spend a lot of time building up what the motivations are the characters are by episode three and then we just sit through them making decisions in real time and we don't have to like it doesn't have to be explained at that point i feel like that's where the show is really starting to work as like a a series i feel like that that's working there and the march makes a lot of sense which is just about these two characters and how they feel about where they are at that point it's not about why we already know that it's about what is going to happen or even the the final kind of conclusion it feels like all those things are yeah stronger this season because we, because of exactly what Angela said, we spend time with the characters. What Tully said about spending time with the characters, we motivate because we understand who they are in the first couple episodes, and then we just see them follow through. All that stuff is making it work like a genre. Yeah, and it seems just... to you like there's less need to educate. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we've talked about that on the podcast before about our tendency to write about our traumas just as an educational piece in these fictions, but. I, you know, they kind of covered a lot of that the first season. So, you know, the story in line with the single mom and the baby that kind of gets wrapped up in forced sterilization, you know, that kind of gets wrapped up, forced marches, all that stuff. It doesn't feel quite so textbooky this season to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I, I'm not going to really shit on the first season because in my memory, I thought it was fine. I thought it was well done and good. It just, uh, there were some plot issues I had with it, but I thought the the bad guys were good in that one and, and the interactions between the characters. And, and so my memory of it is not really good about the first season. And so I just want to give that caveat to say, I don't, I don't hate that, 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 that season. There's some good moments in that first season. I, I do think that the Erica Tremblay written episode is a really good one. Um, that's doing all the things we're talking about this season. But I agree that the like the villains were good in that last season. I feel like um, learning about Manuelito was really good in the last season. Um, oh yeah, we really like Manuelito, and I really liked her in this one too. I really, she was the main the main character that I kind of leaned into throughout the show. She was the, the, it was through her eyes I enjoyed watching this movie because I felt whatever it was, 
I liked the way she did her work. I liked how, like, I, it felt like, you know, she was doing a lot of the detective work of, like, finding the, the paperwork, going to the microfiche. And I felt like, I think I like her, she seems most connected to the community because she's going after that kid who keeps stealing shit and she's trying to help him out. And she's also like, you know, the one who's more quote unquote traditional person of all, of all of them. And so I kind of felt, I think that's a part of what I liked about her as a character. And she seems kind of like a just a badass character. And also I don't remember her in the books. And so that probably helps it too, because I remember the main male characters in the books. I don't remember her because she comes in later in the books. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I felt like, like she's new to me because I forgot about where she fits in in the books. I think that it's interesting that, you know, we we learn about Joe's father's wishes for him to get out of the res and how much they resented him getting married to a very traditional girl and setting up roots. And then here we've got Bernadette, who is also very traditional, has those roots, but she is taking that journey that Joe didn't as kind of a surrogate daughter of his and especially given the timeline and just you know knowing how everybody was kind of fleeing the reservation at the time it's just interesting that they paralleled each other like that to me mm -hmm. yeah I mean for me it, it felt like that was the reason he was willing to not fight so hard to keep her as he understood the things that she had to gain how important it was for someone at her age probably yeah that was an interesting aspect to her particular story when i thought that they were going to probably move into romance a little bit more than they do i'm glad that they didn't but it's hinted just enough so it so it feels like it's a sacrifice or it feels like there's potential that she's leaving but it also like leaves a convenient open space for chi to like be the second in the office i guess which seems unfair to everybody else it seems to be there longer but i'm sure that's what's gonna happen uh <laughs> yeah and what's interesting about like uh manuelito so i just read like on the books and so uh, she does go join like the border patrol in the books and th there was a group called shadow wolves and i don't know if that's talked about in the in the books themselves but they were like a law enforcement unit that was created like in 1974 and they were like on the borders and helping like the the border people, especially like in Tohono O'odham territories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, Sonny Skyhawk was trying to do a TV show about them. Mm -hmm. And they're like trackers who almost kind of find like drug smugglers and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the book, Sinister Pig is when she goes to join the, the border patrol. So my assumption is that they're going to kind of base it on Sinister Pig the next season. Mm -hmm. Or at least maybe her storyline, if we still see her. Right. I, I guess think that maintains in the storylines angela mentioned a couple other things so she talked about uh this like there is this subplot <laughs> about um th this like medical subplot that the what is her name emma right yeah, the, the nurse wife. the wife uh emma leaphorn and she's like dealing with sally as a young mother at home and kind of like handling a child for the first time and like recognizing that maybe she's uh, also maybe pushing her own wishes to have a child around since she's missing one after he's died. But also at work, she's dealing with this, what, newspaper reporter who's asking asking to cover the sterilization controversy that's happening. What I felt like 
overall about the season is like I it probably needed more episodes because we have a bunch of characters that we're following throughout the show. There I think the potential the like... potential of it is there. Yeah. 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 And I think there need to be maybe a couple more episodes. Yeah, but totally all the storylines because yeah. the killer bad guy, we get a background story of him. I, I do think we get to know who he is as a person because of his murdering of the mother in that. Well, and the conversation that he has on the down in the Arroyo or whatever it's called. Right. Right. I liked him as a bad guy. I mean, oh, was... yeah, the whole unstoppable, unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought he was good too. He reminded me of like the Cohen Brothers character. Exactly. Uh, and Sugar. Sugar. Yeah. Sugar and uh, Billy Bob Thornton on the first season of Fargo. It kind of reminded me of those characters. And mm-hmm. I, I like those kind of characters. I think they're kind of badass. I kind of feel like last season I was able to put it put on this series and just kind of work around the house. This season mm-hmm. I was like, oh wait, what did I just miss? I had I mean then I found myself having to sit down and like pay attention. Right. Yeah, the nuance and subtleties of yeah. the good storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I, it was good. Yeah, it was good. It it started to remind me of most AMC shows. It was like starting to be able to compare it to like Better Call Saul or or Breaking Bad, I guess, like the two big AMC things. It, you're right. It's not a casual view. And that's the reason I had to like rewatch it because I, I, I didn't see the final one. I was like, oh, I got to rewatch. And in the rewatch, I, I realized I had to go back to some of the first episodes to like remember certain storylines. So that's interesting that it's like just complex enough for me to have to like be invested enough to go back. And it's somewhat working in that way, especially with like the antagonist, what we're talking about here. I feel like it's very, that felt like Breaking Bad to me. I feel like Breaking right. Bad and Hannibal a little bit, like the opening of these shows where we kind of like go back in time and we spend time with the character doing something that seems unrelated. And then we go forward and then it suddenly has a revelation about why we learned that information from the past. And that was really interesting. And that started to really feel like great TV, regardless of what the content is. And he really did feel like an unstoppable force. I mean, that antagonist episode number three, it felt like that was Halloween mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. right where it's like michael myers is gonna there's no stopping michael myers michael myers is gonna like get away <clears throat> michael myers is gonna kill and there's no stopping or understanding and in that way it was like also like a genre film which was interesting but yeah the the i what did he symbolize sunrise well i mean he i think he he symbolizes the unstoppable element of colonialism yeah that's our Michael Myers. Yeah. Colonialism is our Michael Myers. He's hired by evil white guys to do evil things to brown people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and he says he does it out of his hatred of Indians. I think it's a mislead when he's like being interrogated in the fifth episode, I think, Black Hole Sun, where Lee Porn and he are talking in the uh, the interrogation room. But I think it's also like, it is true. It's true and not true. I'm sure it's like, you know, his disregard. And he loves to say that the death of Chi's son meant that he was of no consequence. Leaphorn's son? I'm sorry, Leaphorn's son. Yeah, the fact that he says that about to Leaphorn about his son. And he has like, he's so gleeful about it. All those things are just something about how colonialism is successful and it's like gleeful and it's hatred and it's like tricky about its hatred it's like yeah i i hate people of color and it's both true and not true i'm curious as to how many people knew who alfred newman is who is alfred newman to you (laughs) he's a 
a character from that magazine. <laughs> He's a film composer too. Isn't there an Alfred Newman that's a film composer? Yeah, Alfred Alfred Newman was a film composer and he, he composed the 20th century song that we hear all the time that <laughs> comes with the logo. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But the character uh, Angel's talking about is that dude with a big ear. He's got like missing oh, two. Mad Magazine? Mad Magazine. Yeah, Mad yeah. Magazine. And he used to always say, what me worry? <laughs> right, yeah. And he looks like that. Like, especially when we go to the flashback as a young ch- child, he's got like these very prominent ears and the way that his like, hair is slicked back. Uh-huh. It looks like Alfred Newman mm-hmm. from Mad. So I just wanted to go back to this uh, statement. Uh, Monica found this quote. Do you, do you want to read that quote? This is about the origins of the style of the of the series. Read it how he would say it. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't. I don't know, Chris. <laughs> I can't do a Chris impression, but <laughs> essentially Chris Ayer was giving an interview um, to Screen Rant and he said, well, the whole season was inspired by the first season. And I think we just built out more of the film noir. When we started to identify the film noir more, we came up with the black and white aspect to really change the film noir with a bit of that touch of evil or Maltese Falcon vibe, film noir, police detectives, stark drama was all born out of that milieu. How many times, <laughs> does, he milieu. How many times does he say film noir in that quote? Yeah. We're going to get him a t-shirt. <laughs> he's going to donate $5. I was going to say he's going to be our white savior. Yeah. So it sounds like he's definitely um, talking about the things that were uh responding to it seems like we're recognizing it it seems like those things are successful uh i I think right can i tell you yeah there's one episode the one episode where the killer alfred newman comes up on an elder a navajo elder Mm -hmm. and she like nurses him back to health i was so stressed out during that whole episode because i thought for sure he was going to kill her. It was really, I thought it was really well done. Just building that tension and yeah. the way she was talking. I mean, she was obviously, okay, what is it called when you speak it from birth? Original speaker. Uh, I don't know. First, what the first, first language. Okay. Well, she was obviously a Navajo first language speaker because it would just, she was so natural in that role of caretaker and giving him what he was looking for in a maternal figure that you know and then of course there was the foreshadowing with the axe and i was like oh my gosh it's gonna kill her and then things worked out and i was like that was that was good i enjoyed that episode i thought she she was really i thought she was really good i don't know where they found her so it was somebody's grandma yeah, I agree. That whole sequence. Yeah, really strong. Especially when that's like he's about to leave and he has a moment to kill her. And he's just mm-hmm. like looking at her as she's asleep. And we just linger a little bit like he's contemplating it. Yeah. And then it cuts. We don't know what happened. We don't know if she's alive. Yeah. Right. That's what I was going to say is like, I wasn't sure if he did or didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, even when she was asleep, I didn't know if she was asleep or if she was already, he had choked her to death or what. They kind of left it like whatever that word is called where you didn't know for sure ambiguity yeah ambiguous yeah i think that makes him really strong as like a antagonist we don't we can't quite anticipate 
what he's doing, why he's doing it, or even if he did something. Uh, we just know the potential is there. Yeah, that was really great. Uh, that totally reminded me of like natural born killers. But like, finally, there's somebody who like is of a native background that wrote our version of a native natural born killer scene where like the serial killer is coming and somehow the the elder navajo is able to recognize it to some degree or not but is still welcoming them, welcoming them as a individual as a seeing them as a person and valuing their entity uh, their spirit and that maybe benefits them if he didn't murder her oh well, russell means the russell means character. the yeah the russell means scene in natural born killers yeah okay. did they kill him on that one i thought they killed him yeah, they did. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they accidentally, accidentally. Yeah, but it's so similar, right? Like these, mm. the, a, a killer coming into a hogan, and then an elder speaking in Navajo, and uh, there's sort of, you know, maybe a, a tension yeah. about what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, I would say just talking about the that particular actress, the elder, she out of several of them this season, I feel like um, Leaphorn's parents, including his mother. The woman that she talks to about objects that are being trying to be sold, maybe in the first or second episode, those were like the highlights to me. I felt like those were like the moments where all of a sudden it really felt like it was like capturing something about like being in that space, being around native speakers, and um, just the inflections and the and the the wardrobe and their demeanor. It felt like it was back on my mother's side of the family, like in a room with these Navajos. That was really amazing. And that I assume is just like casting whoever was around. I don't know if it's like, you know, a Billy Luther relative or what, but it, it felt like that those people just came out of the real world. That was amazing. Yeah. And it's like that positive response to the, the that first season's like uh criticism about how the language was not spoken well or not enough or whatever the criticism was and so that was that was cool to see to to make it to even to it, having that makes it feel more quote-unquote real that you had those cats like that show up i always like seeing that seeing those type of people in the movies where you make it feel real yeah absolutely i mean like that's the thing that we really responded to with um, um powell highway you know like seeing the real people in these spaces and at the powwow for example or like the bar that same seems to be what happened there I'm guessing. I don't actually know if that's the case, but it seems like they're they were just pulled from you know families of someone. Um, they were. Yeah. My mom. I mean, because you all know I grew up in Lame Deer, and so when we watched it together as a family, my mom was like, "Oh, that's so and so," or "This is yeah." There was definitely folks from the community in the movie. Yeah, and we're all responding to it like that's um, you know listening to. So there's that whole storyline about the people of darkness church, Native American church. Right. Was I wasn't quite clear as to why that storyline, how it intersected, why it was there. You got me. It, yeah, I mean it kind of just kind of fizzled out. Yeah. And I watched I it, it three a, two, two or three times. I don't know. It was in a book. It wasn't a book. There was a bag. So, yeah, what was in it? She took off with the bag and I I couldn't even tell you what what was in the bag. I'm looking through my notes. I was like, I don't I wrote down, she took the bag, and then there's nothing more about the bag. Yeah, I think it was more symbolic of reference of of white people taking over our, like, our, what do you want to call it, our ceremonies, and mm -hmm. what's that word called? Cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation, yeah, cultural appropriation of our ceremonies and how they do it wrong. But there's also, like, Native people there, too, so they thought it was 
Does that happen often whenever there's white folks who are doing those things? Probably. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never been to one that was non-native driven. I mean, there's lots of sweat lodges provided by non-natives. Yeah. And, you know, to the fact that somebody died from one. Yeah, that's what I was thought, thought I was kind of referencing to in a way. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like it was it was underdeveloped in this season. It felt like it came in maybe at the beginning as something they had to say to tie in to season one. And it was still lingering from season one. We had no idea what was going on, who was involved, if it existed, if it didn't. And it felt like it was obligatory by the final, I don't know, I guess it was the second to last episode, right? Black Hole Sun, where we see it. Where Chi sees it, he discovers it. But it seemed inconsequential, ultimately. It just it felt like it it felt like it didn't even tie into that antagonist's motivations related to the uranium mine and or even to last season's um, heist. I don't know if it was meant to deceive anyone about anything or it also seemed like it was somehow needed to bring back elements of the first season that they were sort of getting rid of, which had to do with this sort of like witchcraft. Because they, they talk about him being a witch and a leader, and he's, I guess, you know, a witch leader, and that somehow maybe all this prayer was guided towards something that was dark, but none of that was explained or clarified or united, and it just felt like it was a, almost like, it was inconsequential to me, at least, when it was revealed. Yeah, I was like, okay. okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one that was like, huh. Yeah, so that felt, again, like, you know, something that maybe could have been explored more if there were more episodes yeah yeah and maybe it'll be a setup for for the next season perhaps too right it could be yeah because the vines he was in the first season right his character yeah he was set up in the first season but he won't be in the next season or so you think he might have made it all the way back that's true yeah we we didn't see him die we just know that there's a potential he can't live so apparently that was a difference between the book and the series that Zahn advocated for is instead of Joe shooting him, mm-hmm. he just left him, mm-hmm. which I don't, you know, I didn't read the book. So, but to me, it does make more sense for him just to drop him off and then go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Joe, as this character on the TV show, mm-hmm. it felt, I feel like he would not have killed him because he had that, what's that called? That conflict within him throughout the series. And so he had to choose between the, the gun or the handcuffs. And so then he chooses to let the, I guess, whatever, let the fate sort it out. Is that, so when Zahn said it, when, I don't know if it's Zahn, but when they were talking about it in that article, they were saying like, is the Indian way, is that something that you guys know about like Navajos? Is that something the way that they deal with those kind of things? Uh, I don't think so. I've never heard anything about that related to like Navajos and um I, torture or vengeance or anything like that um uh no it did remind me of things that were said about the long walk in the episode just prior to that which i think would have been the march i think that one where he, he they're on the look for that guy and you know lee porn and um the a martinez character have that conversation about how monsters are everywhere and and that it's not something that's new and Lee Porn tells the story about the long walk and how the Navajos um, were tortured when they got to the fort and were given a, a meal and they confused the meal for one of benefit to one that was going to kill them. And it's been around a long time. But just the, the idea of having to walk. And I think he he probably brings it also up in that final episode. But that's what I related it to. 
um, since it seemed like it was on his mind from the last couple episodes. But yeah. I haven't heard about anything in, in like real life. Yeah, in the story, I mean, in the show, I, he, I do remember him talking about the, the long walk. But in the article, somebody said that like that was the Indian way of of dealing with somebody like that. And I didn't know if that was like specific Indian way or if it was like quote unquote Indian way. Because like for us, our tribe, like if somebody murders somebody, that person has to go to the family and like get their crops grown, help with everything because they killed that person's family who would do whatever that job is in that family. And for that whole year, they have to do that. And then after that year, they go back to the authorities and they go get killed. They get uh, whatever it's called, shot. Wow. And supposedly everybody, you know, followed the rule and did the, you know, follow through to their execution. The Chukta way. <laughs> yeah, Chukta way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Monica, what were you going to say? We kind of got lost in, in what you were about to say. I just wanted to point out the handful of natives that either directed or wrote the teleplay for this season. Yeah, do tell, ahead. do tell. Okay, I'll list them off. And then if anybody wants to like sort of weigh in on the individuals but billy luther chris air jason gavin stephen paul judd rihanna yazi and desba i've never yeah, heard of stephen paul judd who's that yeah who is that oh seriously you guys are folkies do you not know who that is <laughs> i think we're all friends with them <laughs> oh, oh my God. of course okay i was like first of all everyone needs to stop and google because that shit is awesome Okay. We were playing a Monica joke. That was that was a Monica. That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I am the um I am the token minority in this podcast because I am not from Oklahoma. So <laughs> you can play that joke on me. So I was excited about Billy Luther because I, he's just he just rocks. I'm probably I'm probably biased because his because Miss Navajo was in the film festival that I programmed and we traveled to three different states with it. And he's just, I think he's a great filmmaker. I think he's a great person. So it was kind of cool to see him both, you know, writing the teleplay and directing episode five. And he's got a, his first feature out. Right. Fry bread facing me, which was amazing. Like that I, oh. break. That's the one where I was breaking up in the middle of like my Q and a trying to ask a question. It was like so moving because of how, realistic everything was it, it just felt like they had just traveled back into 1980 or you know late 80s on the, on the reservation and it's a very similar thing that i'm responding to in terms of language and uh, you know so I'm, I'm i i feel his influence in these episodes but it's like, like the casting of an elder or the use of language or what we're seeing in the environment yeah and then he just seems to be a very talented director like it seems like he's really great about cinema um just the suspense is really working in his episodes and the, it's beautiful to look at, you know, it's just great performances. feels like that's a strong voice in this particular season. I agree. And yeah, anybody else? Stephen, Stephen Paul Judd, we kind of all talked about that particular episode that he wrote. Yeah, um, speaking of Halloween, that had like a very Halloween vibe to it, especially. Is that what the one you were saying about? Yeah. Mm -hmm, the antagonist yeah, in the red light going. Choo, choo, choo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that. Like we really get a sense of like genre, maybe because of him. But like, there's this also like the somehow when she is talking to the young boy, he's he seems to be talking about things on one level about popular foods. It feels like that's something like 
Paul would do is get us like foods or like popular elements. But then he also makes us re-question our assumptions about things when the young boy reveals that he's the basically like the the elder to Chi because of uh, the way that their plans play out. And um, I feel like those things we really ascribe to to Stephen Paul Judd. The, yeah, they, that like, scene, see one thing and reverse our assumptions about it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, that scene definitely felt like a Stephen Paul Judd right to me and that concept. And that's good they brought that concept in of like, you know, those uh, those baby uncles that people have mm-hmm. based on either clan system or just how they're born sometimes. Sometimes we got, you know, <laughs> uncles or aunties that are born a lot later than we were, you know. Yeah, and, you know, obviously Chris Sayre is somebody that still continues throughout season one. He is an executive producer. He seems to have directed probably more episodes than the others, but is not in the writing room, it seems like, right? Not in the writing room. <laughs> but three I mean, Navajos were on it. Three Navajos, yeah. So that's and cool. Desbaz, I think, in the cast from both seasons. I think she plays Miss Attici. According to um, Wikipedia, that... The teleplay, does that mean like that you're in the writer's room if if it says teleplay by? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So all these people I listed it off, like Rihanna Yazi, Desba, Stephen Paul Judd, Jason Gavin, and Billy Luther, they all wrote episodes. And then the folks that I didn't identify because I, I researched and didn't they didn't seem like they identified as native or also writers, Max Hurwitz. Hurwitz, yeah, very famous. John Worth. Right. Probably Graham Roland. Graham Roland. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, all those have a great history in TV, often non-Indigenous content, and I don't know how they all identify. Yeah. The the revelation in the series to me, I mean, it was great to see Rihanna Yazzie's work on a series, right? So we talked about her first feature before, and now she's working on the series. I don't know if she's going to return, but, and she, she um, wrote the first episode this season. It felt like she deals a lot with like mothers and also does not explain and with the use of language. And I kind of felt that in the first episode, but the revelation to me really was Jason Gavin, right? So like he's Blackfeet and he's got a long history in TV and I'd never known that he was Blackfeet and I never known where he, uh, or his filmography, I guess I got familiar with it a little bit because of this particular series, but he wrote for Friday night lights. That's probably his most, uh, famous series. Um, he wrote for Roswell, New Mexico, which is di- you know deals with similar material, but definitely also wrote for Chambers. He was like an executive story editor and a writer of that particular series. So I don't know if you guys have seen Chambers. Chambers, oh my gosh, that uh, show we should definitely do. It was a one season Netflix kind of deal, and it's kind of supernatural horror Mm -hmm. transplant i took the heart of someone who's haunting me kind of thing and it just at first when i first started watching it i was really excited about it like everybody gets all excited about you know oh look at all these natives on a show and i uh i feel like it kind of quickly devolved into (laughs) oh not for me i don't know what do you think of it sunrise yeah, uh, well, I I definitely I was up and down about it. You know, this I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, this is so exciting! Like, oh, we're on a Netflix series. When it's like, you know, like that was all we were on at that point, right? Like this is two thousand nineteen. So, 
pandemic comes and it was something I could watch. And I was very excited that there's going to be, you know, something that maybe could continue with our own presence on screen. And, you know, it had its ups and downs in its depiction and it had ups and downs in language and it, but there was a lead that was native. Um, there was Sidney Friedland as a director in one of the episodes, right? Uh, we're talking now about Jason Gavin who wrote some of the episodes and, um, uh, and, you know, there was, great to see native cast members in there right like there's you know morning star i think angelique is one of the episodes and all that was exciting and the fact that all of a sudden there's a, a navajo point of view of a protagonist that was exciting but yeah it was like i had to put up with all the inaccuracies i had to put up with the fact that really it's like you know a perspective that didn't really seem to understand what it was trying to discuss and it felt like it probably would not get renewed because it was getting very muddy in its, its narrative. But um, the the supernatural or the paranormal horror elements were really intriguing on their own, but I don't know if they would be successful if I were to just watch it as a horror, um, even though also like Ty West directed um, one of these episodes. Mm. Um, so I felt like there was a lot of potential for it to be successful somehow, almost. But it's not a surprise that it didn't make a season two. And uh, it's probably good considering the inaccuracies. But I am also, I wish I had seen um, the cast move on from this particular series because I, Sivian Alra Rose, I don't know if I'm saying that correct. But um, so. yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she was um, on the series as the lead. And um, I haven't seen her in anything besides a short. And it feels like she, even though she was in this sort of mishap of a series, it feels like she could be in another show. I don't know why she's not on this show. Maybe we can revive her career or something by let's do like a Patreon extra where we all watch this. Since nobody else has watched this series, we can just go back on Netflix and watch it and, and go through it. It's pretty astonishing. Some of the inaccuracies for sure at the they, mm-hmm. At one point, they have this like signing ceremony where her boyfriend, who's native, gets to pick which tribe he's going to be enrolled in. And then there's a party or so- <laughs> something like that. I had never heard of something like that before. Not to say that it, well, maybe it is inaccurate. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like a, I mean, it sounds like a sports team thing. Yeah. That's how they presented it. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, it does. Did I get a jersey? Yeah. <laughs> He got the Wi-Fi password. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like maybe Chambers is something we should explore at some point. I do remember liking one of those episodes. I don't remember which one, but I wouldn't mind rewatching it. Uma Thurman is in it. Tony Goldwyn. Just, really? Yeah. Yeah. What year is this? Twenty nineteen was the release. Twenty nineteen. Long ago. Yeah, not that long ago. So we've given some generally good thoughts about uh, season two. We'll see what's up for season three. When that comes around, I'm sure we'll talk about it. But we're doing a lot of talking about a uh, a series and a genre that's written by a non-Indigenous writer. I think Monica's got a list of some Indigenous writers that work in this area. Um, Let's hear about those. Yeah, I very quickly put together a list of just Natives who have written specifically mysteries because you know tony hillerman is so famous but i think we can i think we can give some natives some mystery you know natives who are doing the work writing mysteries i think we can give them 
a little bit of credit at the end of this folks that you can go check out. So I've got Ramona Emerson first, and we had an episode with her. Um, David Heska Wombly Wyden. I can't off the top of my head remember the name of his, but he's got one book out and another one coming. Marcy Rendon, three books, three mystery novels based in Minnesota. Stephen Graham Jones, mystery slash horror slash wet your pants, scary. Carol LeFevre and Linda Hogan both have written um, mysteries. And then also to add to the list, Vanessa Lilly, Deborah Ledford, and D.M. Roll. If you love to read, I would still, I would highly recommend visiting Erin's underscore library. She's been a guest host on our show before. She lists out all the Indigenous author releases coming up year by year and has a really nice database where you can go look up. If you're interested in something other than mysteries, you can look up Indigenous authors and their books. In the meantime, we'll keep our fingers crossed for new series, and we'll see what happens. It definitely feels like there are some series on the rise from some of our favorites, probably far in the future, and then some from, you know, franchises like True Detective, which we'll be holding our breath about. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, Thanks for joining us again for this discussion, and uh, hopefully if you haven't seen the series, watch it. Um, It's always great to support our natives in whatever format, and hopefully... If you like it, state the reasons why it's working, because I think that will help anybody out in the Hollywood or whatever writer's room people are working in. But in the meantime, uh... be sure to find us online on our socials on Facebook, Real Indigenous Podcast, on Twitter, Real Indigenous, and then our Instagram, Real Indigenous Pod. We also have a link tree that is listed in our show notes that has links to recent things that we've talked about and we are launching our Patreon. So be sure to go listen to our special episode, launching our Patreon with our different levels and how to sign up. If you want to help sunrise with his internet connection, please. And my microphone sunrises internet connection. Also it's, is it still Twitter or is it just the social media formerly known as Twitter? This, oh, you're right. It's the social media formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, that's true. It does have like an icon instead of a name now. We don't. Right. So we don't say X. It's I mean, a, can, is it X? Is it huh? <laughs> that's a question. X. <laughs> We're even on Threads, but I never pro. I never post on Threads. So. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for joining us on this episode. And uh, anything that sounds like it might have been cut out, you could probably find on our soon to launch. Um, Patreon that Angela <laughs> mentioned. And in the meantime, uh, I'll say don't just keep it real. Keep it real. It's like a dirt. Y'all sound like y'all singing now. Yeah.